What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and this is Anthony Davis, uh, a professor. And I will let you kind of tell me your your background. I'm Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University and the Milton Friedman Distinguished Scholar at the Foundation for Economic Education. All right. That's a mouthful. So that's like you said earlier, it took a long time to get probably all yeah, of those. Yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So how long have you been a professor and all that stuff? Oh, I've been a professor off and on for 20 years. I spent some time you know, straight out of graduate school, went to uh, teach at a small college, uh, left to start a uh, dot-com company at the height of the dot-com era, uh, went back, start a few other companies. So I get bored every, every, about every seven years. It's this itch. I have to go do something. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So what dot-com, what was it like? Dot-com what? Oh, it was a, uh, it, it, the, the company, Parabon Computation, I was uh, one of the first employees there, um, does, you may have heard of them. They're the people who currently do this thing where they can take a piece of DNA from a crime scene, run it through their supercomputers, and construct a picture of the person whose what? DNA it is. Yeah, it's an astounding science fiction type thing. That's insane. Yeah, isn't it cool? That sounds, it's like, like for, you ever watch the show Forensic Files? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's exactly. creepy voice. That guy with the creepy voice. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. So, so they, you know, one of the the one of the first cases they did was out in the West. Some unsolved murder. They had DNA from the scene, ran it through uh, Parabon supercomputers, and they get the picture. So they put the picture on the up. news, and uh, the guy sees it and turns himself in. <laughs> it's so incredible. It yeah, you're like, yeah, ja ching Yeah, so, yeah. And you started not you started the system or the. the no, I was one of the founding employees. Friend of mine uh, started the company, and uh, and I joined him. I was employee number three. Wow. And at the time, the the business model was we would take uh, computer time off of. PCs that were connected to the internet. So you've got your PC and you're doing word processing. Sure. You step away to get a cup of coffee. Your computer's idle. Well, we can take that computation while it's sitting there and bundle it with others. And you got super computation. And then we sell it by the slice to people. That was the original business model. Holy shit. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> all right. Uh, wow. That's insane. Yeah. That's so cool, though. Yeah. So you're, like, you're out there saving lives, really, and solving murders. Yeah, it's kind of fun. <laughs> And you don't do that anymore, obviously. No, no, no. I left that, started a couple of other companies, um, and then um, just recently started, a couple of years ago, started a nonprofit. Cool. My colleague, James Harrigan, and I go around to high schools throughout the country giving one-day seminars on economics and government. Nice. All right. So there's a couple topics we could talk about. Um, you're definitely a pro in probably all of them, and economics is definitely your thing. So I think um, maybe we could start with... Um, the immigration type, you know, topic right. of what, what I remember watching a video that you did. I think it was you at IHS and it was like, it was a cool graph of like, like how much money immigration brings in and jobs and right. like all this really cool information. So like, I didn't know any of that. I only see what's on the, the tube, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and that's what you're supposed to believe. So can you kind of give me like a little like information of like, you know, the, you know, the A, B, and Cs of, of sure. immigration? Well, there, there are, of course, pluses and minuses, and the minuses get a lot of press. So let me start yeah. with the pluses okay. on, on immigration. And that is, uh, if we talk about the number of American jobs that immigrants take that would have otherwise gone to Americans, and there's all sorts of discussion you can have on that topic. But if you put that aside for a moment and ask a different question, how many jobs have immigrants created? 
And there you find an astounding thing. You know, you can name five immigrants that founded uh, Sun Microsystems, eBay, Google, uh, and I forget the other two yeah. big big companies that together employ more immigrants than have, or excuse, excuse me, they've created more jobs than there are immigrants who come into the country. Sure. You know, these five companies together are worth something like $3 trillion. And that's something that we have now, $3 trillion worth of worth created by just five immigrants or, wow. or children of, of immigrants. And so it, it raises the question, well, look, um, what's the benefit to immigrants? Well, one of the things is, if you think about it, the immigration process requires that you do what? You're leaving your home country where you grew up and your, your family and your friends are, going to a different country with a different culture, possibly a different language, different mores, all of this stuff. Why? You're going because you're looking to build a better life for yourself and your family. Now, what sorts of attributes are those? Those are the attributes of an entrepreneur. Yeah. That's exactly the sort of people we want coming into the country. So the immigration process itself is a filtration mechanism. That what come the people that come through that process more more so than for the average population are are entrepreneurial. And so that you know they create jobs. They end up creating more jobs than they occupy. Damn, I never thought of it like that. So that's that's one of the upsides. Another upside, one of the things that you hear is, well, immigrants come in and you know they don't pay taxes. And the fact is, they do pay taxes. There's an interesting thing here: the the go federal government will issue what's called an ITIN, and I forget what the initials stand for, but the ITIN does the same thing that a social security number does but you issue it to people who for whatever reason don't have social security numbers amongst them illegal immigrants hmm. and so if if i'm an illegal immigrant i can get an itin and now i'm paying federal taxes i'm paying social security medicare taxes and the interesting thing is because i'm illegal although i'm paying into social security and medicare i can't withdraw from it. I get no benefit. So in, in in a sense, illegal immigrants are net positives to the Social Security and Medicare systems. They contribute, but they don't draw out. Wow. So they're paying for something that they that they'll never get. They'll never right. get like yeah. we would. Now that's on the plus side. On on the minus side, you know, you hear things about you hear some reasonable arguments and some unreasonable arguments. And I think some of the unreasonable arguments are immigrants are taking American jobs. The, you know, and the fact is the numbers indicate that they're contributing more jobs than, than they occupy. And even then, the jobs that they that immigrants, particularly illegal immigrants, tend to occupy are jobs that Americans don't want to occupy in the first place. Yeah. So in that sense, they're not taking anything. Um, but some of the more reasonable arguments say things like, well. We've got people coming into this country with different cultures, different mores, and that changes what we have here. And that's correct. It, it does. But in some sense, to say that you know, we have this American culture and, and to claim it's monolithic, which it, it isn't, we're a bunch of little subcultures that happen to be unified by a political boundary, um, these things evolved because precisely because our parents and grandparents were immigrants and came in with their own mores and cultures and so forth. And, and we all make do. And the way we make do is that the immigrants adopt to an extent the, the culture that's here in the U.S. And the Americans who are here alter a little bit. And we start to adopt the culture that, 
that in part that they brought with them. And so it's this give and a take that that makes uh, ends up making the United States culturally a very interesting place to live. Yeah, it's like a, a giant melting pot. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So Andrew Yang is a uh, 2020 candidate, um, and he, uh, I really like him. Um, I'm not saying like I'm, I'm voting for him, but I'm saying I liked him because he looks at it as an entrepreneurial, like economic mindset um right and he has the 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 freedom dividend he calls it every every american over 18 gets a thousand dollars a month and he says he can get it from all these other places but his dad was a uh, immigrant that founded a bunch of patents for ge that helped america and that company create all these great things so what, what is your like take on the universal base income all right, so I'll tell you about the universal basic income, but I think Andrew Yang goes off the rails, and he goes off the rails in a place that people wouldn't expect, and that is at coming at this saying he's a businessman, he understands how these things work, and he can make the government more efficient, we can do things right, and that's always a non-starter. It's a non-starter because our government wasn't designed to be efficient. It was actually designed to be inefficient. And the reason it was designed to be inefficient is so that a majority of the population can't run roughshod over a minority, that it's difficult to get things done and there has to be a give and a take. Hmm. That's very unlike what happens in business. So to the extent that someone brings along all well-meaning, and of course it makes sense that you would want to bring efficiency to government, you actually end up if you're either you're unsuccessful or if you're successful, you end up with a worse government because now you've got one that is good at doing what it does, yeah. which is bad news for any minority population. Putting that aside, let's talk about the UBI, universal basic income. The idea here is that everybody pays X percent of their income into a pot and from this pot, everybody receives a check for the same amount of money. So for example, I'm just going to pick numbers out of the air. You pay 10% of your income. I pay 10% of my income into this pot. If you earn a lot of money, you're paying more because you're paying 10% of a larger number. Yeah. I make a little bit of income. I'm paying less, 10% of a smaller number. But we each get a check for a thousand bucks. And the idea is that that check is supposed to cover basic things, sure. right? Now... I think UBI is a good idea and a dangerous idea. It's a good idea if you can replace everything we currently do to help the poor. So think about income assistance, housing subsidies. Um, I would even go so far as to say things like minimum wage, social security, Medicare, all of it. Absolutely everything we do to help people. Replace it with the UBI. And if you, you can say rightly so, a thousand bucks a month isn't enough mm -mm. to make up for that. Well, fine, we'll jack up the numbers then. Let's say 5,000 bucks a month. Yeah. Of course, you're gonna have to increase the percentage we pay in, but you know, these things work out. <clears throat> what you, The benefit you get from doing this is there are all sorts of odd interactions that occur. You think of it like this. When a physician prescribes drugs to someone who's sick, mm -hmm. they have to be very careful if they're prescribing multiple drugs because multiple drugs can interact in ways that they didn't intend sure. and bad things can happen. The same thing is true for economic policies. So we can say something like, well, we want a policy in place that helps people who don't 
have much income. We call that income assistance. Or we will have another policy in place that helps people to afford housing. We call this housing subsidies. And these things can, they're separate programs, but they can interact in ways that cause outcomes that we that are actually bad, that we didn't intend. Sure. It's, it's interaction. So one of the benefits of a UBI is it takes all those bad interactions off the table because all that stuff is gone. Everybody gets a check for $5,000, period, and off you go. That's, that's the good side of, of UBI. The downside of UBI is a practical one, and that is there is no way that I can see politically that we would institute a UBI in place of all of these things. Yeah. What would happen is if we got to the point that UBI had enough um, support amongst the voters, politicians would step in and say, well, okay, we'll have UBI, but we won't take away this program or that program. And why are they saying that? Because this program or that program benefits people who vote for the politicians, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. And so then you end up with a situation where we have all of the programs we currently have with UBI on top of it. Mm -hmm. And that's worse. In fact, if you do the math, something like that would end up looking like social security all over again, the same magnitude. Sure. So and you, people may know that the social security board of trustees itself says that social security will be insolvent in the next 10, 15 years. Well, imagine creating another program of that magnitude that's going to be insolvent for all the same reasons social security is sure. insolvent, right? Yeah. And now you've just doubled your problems. Yeah. So yeah, so, so I've heard that too, where it's like, I probably will never even see social oh right security yep. you know which is so what would happen like what like not that i i mean i i guess my taxes come out and i pay for social security i'll never see that what does that mean for like us or me or you know what i mean like the individual right. so so we're shifting gears now we'll talk about social security um one of the the problem here is when Social Security was first instituted, we had something like, I don't know what the number was, but it was something in the order of 10 or 15 workers for every retiree who was drawing out Social Security. Interesting. And over time, that, that declines because we're having fewer babies and now you've got more, and we're living longer. So you have more retirees, fewer workers. And the break-even is approximately three to one. So three workers for every one Social Security recipient, and there that's sustainable. Yeah. Right now, I believe we're at something like 2.2 or 2.5. So we're below the sustainable level. And so what happens, of course, you talk about not getting Social Security. Yeah, you probably won't. I might get something, right? <laughs> and, you know, Social Security Board of Trustees has said things like, well, if you want to, if you want Social Security to continue, you're going to have to do one or two or a combination of two things. One is increase payroll taxes 20%. The others cut Social Security benefits 20%. And you can imagine neither yeah, one of those is... Yeah. Know that's happening. Nobody wants either one of those things, right? <laughs> but the alternative is Social Security goes bankrupt, which is where it's headed. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about this is the rate of return on Social Security is abysmal. So if you do the math and you say something like, over the course of my career, I pay in so much in Social Security taxes, and then when I retire, I should draw out, at least under the current rules, a certain amount. Sure. And you can do the mathematics and figure out, in effect, what the rate of return is on that. So you think about your Social Security taxes as an investment in the what comes out when you retire, that's the return. Well, the rate of return on Social Security is around one-third of 1% one above inflation. So nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's basically zero. It's horrible. 
<laughs> and there's an interesting sub sub note here, which is that it's actually worse for minority populations and for men versus women because of differences in longevity. There is, in effect, a 100% death tax on Social Security. You hmm. can pay in your whole working career, and at age 65, you retire, and if you die one day later, all the benefits you would have received, gone. Gone, yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you, when you realize that, you realize the longer you live, the more you'll pull out. Sure. So it turns out, if you do the math, the average um, black male can expect a rate of return of somewhere around negative 1%, so 1% below inflation. Jesus. Yeah, the average white male, I believe, is at negative a third of percent. The average white female is like 1.5 or whatever it is. But the numbers are all low. So here's the thing. We can actually put that to our advantage. And you put it to our advantage by doing something like the following. You say to all the young people out there, so you're college age, you're getting ready to enter the workforce, you just entered the workforce, and we say to you, you're going to pay into Social Security until your age, and you have to do the math, but the number's about age 40, 45. You pay in until you're, you're about, let's say, 45, age 45. And at age 45, from that point forward, you never pay another dime of Social Security taxes. But in return, you don't get any Social Security benefits when you retire. Hmm. Now, people wig out saying, oh my God, I'm going to get no Social Security benefits. But consider, if you don't have to pay in any social security taxes from age 45 onward. That's an extra whatever it is, 10%, 12% that you'll get on your paycheck because that was going to social exactly. security and now it comes to you. You can invest it privately in a IRA or a 401k. Yes. And if you're concerned that these things are risky, you can invest it into treasury bills, which are the exact same thing that social security invests in. Huh. And you'll get a higher rate of return by far. By far than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so much so that you're actually better off taking this deal of saying, fine, I'm going to walk away. I'll yeah. take no benefits, but don't tax me anymore. And if you do, if you enact a plan like that, what you do is you create this this moving window of people who are no longer on Social Security. So by the time those currently college-age kids reach age 65, there's nobody left on Social Security. Yeah. You phase the whole thing out. Interesting. And it, and then it wouldn't go bankrupt. Yeah. Well, either. yeah. In, in that sense, yeah, it, that's correct. You would phase the thing out. It would, it would go bankrupt between now and then, but you can borrow or something because the thing's phasing out. Yeah. And it's going to become less and less of a problem. But you've you've gotten rid of the thing at the same time, not harming anybody yeah. who would have been involved with the system. And you're probably benefiting them more than you would yeah. if you just let it go. Yeah. But is that going to happen? No, it's not no. going to happen. <laughs> Why? Because again, politicians are goals to get elected. And how do they get elected? By pleasing people in, you know, what are they going to do? People are going to say, well, no, I don't like this. And Scary. so, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to vote for you, if you, despite the fact that it's a good thing. It, it's the same phenomenon you would get if you took your three-year-old to the physician for his checkup sure. and the physician had the three-year-old decide for himself what kind of shots or treatments he was going to get. <laughs> and of course you're going to get bad outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's insane. I never, that's, that's so interesting that like all of these things that are potentially good ideas that would benefit everybody as a whole long term are like, no, we don't want to do that. It's because like we're scared and like the politicians and blah blah blah. So like it, it's partly that. It's 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 what we call the public choice problem. The beautiful example of the public choice problem is Amtrak. Amtrak has a line that runs from Los Angeles to New Orleans called the Sunset Limited. And the Sunset Limited was inaugurated in 1970. 
And from 1970 to the present, the Sunset Limited has never turned a profit. It is operating what? a loss that entire time. In fact, the loss is so bad that Amtrak could actually save money by telling its customers, please don't take this train. We'll give you free airline tickets to fly. It would cost Amtrak less to fly to pay to fly its customers than it does to, to move them by train. And you ask the question, well, this is stupid. Yeah. How, why does this Amtrak, why does the Sunset Limited persist? It's a public choice problem. The public choice problem is it persists because um, Congress votes for it to persist. And why does Congress vote for it to persist? Because the Sunset Limited line runs through a tremendous number of congressional districts, throwing off jobs in each one. Wow. So every one of those congressional representatives, even though the Sunset Limited is bad for the country, each of those congressional representatives, it's good for them to vote to keep it in, it in existence. Them. And so, yes, we have 40 years of, of ridiculous what? train. Yeah. How do they pay for their employees to like... Oh, well, the government borrows. So you, know, you talk about our $22 trillion debt. Part of it is... Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's so stupid. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> So like, but that's just the one line where Amtrak makes money, but like... It does on some of its lines. Generally, my understanding is the lines in the Northeast Corridor are profitable. Elsewhere, they aren't. Wow. That's so, that's so weird. Well, it's an interesting thing because one of the things that happens today is that people get very skittish when you talk about profit. And it's a separate conversation, but I think that comes to down to a misunderstanding of money. But nonetheless, people get skittish when you talk about profit, that they perceive that somehow a company that makes a profit is, is pulling resources out of the economy somehow. And, and what happens is when you're making a profit, what's actually happening is that you are providing more value to society than you're asking for in return. So you look at something like the Sunset Limited that's incurring a loss. It's actually wasting resources. It's it's taking resources that could be used for something else and transforming them into a product that has less value than the resources themselves had. Got it. And that that difference in value, that's the loss. And so you know, one of the things that, that we do is we become skeptical of things that make profit. And you'll hear a lot of the candidates now talking about insurance companies. Well, we don't want our money going to these insurance companies. They're making a profit. No, the fact that they're making a profit indicates that they're providing more value to us yeah. than they're asking for in return. That's yeah. a sign of something good happening. Yeah. It's not a sign of something bad. Interesting. So I guess we can take another shift and go to insurance. Is that like, a, I know that's a big thing now with like everybody, you know, wanting free health care and all the other stuff. Right. Is that something that you kind of touch on or deal with in economics in your space as far as like how much it would cost for that to happen like they do in Canada? Because, you know, there's the, oh, well, you don't, you don't pick your provider. It's not as good quality. It's blah, 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 blah. Right. Yeah. And one of the things we have to keep in mind here is is to step away from all of the details and look at the big picture. And the big picture is you can have a private system where you're paying for your health care and you're paying for the insurance infrastructure that, that makes these things possible. Mm-hmm. Or you can have a government system in which you're paying for your health care plus you're paying for the government bureaucracy required sure. to, to manage the thing. And of the two, the government bureaucracy is by far more expensive so there's no way, absolutely no way, the government can manage a healthcare system and have it and do so at a lower cost than the private sector can. Now, what the government can do is hide the cost. And it hides the cost by doing things like, and you find this in Canada, um, when you walk into a hospital, 
it doesn't cost you much. And people point to that and, see, and say, see, this is low-cost healthcare. Yeah, except you're missing the fact that the Canadian tax rate is, you know, whatever it is, almost twice as much as it is in the U.S. Uh-huh. So they're actually prepaying for their yeah. health care. You're not seeing it when you walk in the door because it was taken out of your paycheck over the previous five years. The other thing that happens is in systems like this, you you start to get a problem of not enough health care being provided. And so that comes out in the wash as wait times. So I want to get you know an MRI done, and there's a six-month wait or a three-month wait oh or whatever God. it is. Whereas in the U.S., you know, I can schedule it and be in the next week. Yeah. Now, that's expensive to do it that way, but the reason it's expensive is because that's what it costs. In Canada, when you've got the three- or six-month wait or whatever it is, you're in effect paying two, twice. You're paying in your... T- taxes and plus you're paying in the delay so you get a lot of of cases of canadians more wealthy canadians coming to the u.s to get for to get health care in fact it became such a problem that several years ago canada was talking about making it illegal for canadians to come to the u.s to get out of money yeah yeah interesting yeah because you always hear like the opposite of that oh it's free health care you walk in but no you're i was thinking i've always thought there's no way that nothing is ever free right nothing yes. is truly free if you're paying twice the amount of taxes you're 100 percent paying for it so right like, yeah you're just hiding how yeah. how you're paying for it yeah awesome interesting because that that changes a lot of like i know me my i so i have a pre-existing heart condition i've had three open heart surgeries um until obamacare i was practically uninsurable with most jobs yeah otherwise yeah. i'd have to wait like 18 months or whatever right. it was to get like a eh, plan Ever since that took an effect, I was able to, I could start day one, I could be insured, Yes, which was a game changer for me because right. I like have to go to children's hospital every year because I'm kind of a guinea pig. Like they don't know what happens to anyone older than me that's mm-hmm. had my procedure. So I like had to have in- good insurance. And so I was like, oh, well, free insurance would be awesome. But now that you say that, it's like. Yeah, well, the, you know? one of the benefits of Obamacare was was this thing that you've described, that um, if I have a pre-existing condition, I can go in and I can get insurance, yeah. you know, and this is fine. Um, and there, there are a number of, of problematic footnotes there, but one interesting thing to ask is, how did we get to the point where this pre-existing condition thing becomes a problem? And we got to this point in part... It's only in part, but it's a big part. In part because we tied health insurance to jobs, hmm. which is weird because you know your employer doesn't provide your car insurance, he doesn't provide your house insurance, That's but true. he provides your health insurance. And why is that? Yeah, why? It's that because back in the 1930s, 1940s, um, we were having a problem with wages rising and the government imposed a... Uh, price limit on wages. Wages cannot rise above a certain point. It was mm-hmm. to help control inflation. And what happened? Well, I'm a business owner and I want to hire some some guys who are talented and they've got jobs already. I can't offer them more money because we're already at the cap. Yeah. What I can do is offer to pay their health insurance because that doesn't count as their wages. What? And so I say, come work for me. I'm going to pay you the same amount you're getting there, but I'll pay your health insurance also. So so what happened was the health insurance became part of the job, 
because it was how it was how the market got around this wage control that the government had put in place. What? And so we yeah, we have this thing now. Now of course we don't have the wage controls anymore, but over time what's happened is that Congress has given special tax treatment to employer provided health care. It's yeah. you get to pay for it in pre-tax dollars. And because of that, it's cheaper for you and it's cheaper for your employer to provide the health insurance than it would be for you to go out on the open market. Yeah. Not because of the market, but because of how Congress has taxed the thing. What? So so that comes to this pre-existing condition problem. And the pre-existing condition problem in part comes about from the fact that when you change jobs, you have to change insurance because your insurance is tied to your job. Yeah. And the new insurance company is going to say, well, you've got this pre-existing condition. I'm not going to cover this thing. And now we've got the problem of, you know, how do I get coverage for this problem yeah. that I have? And what you see is it's a cascade effect of the government stepping in and for good intentions, doing something that economically isn't smart. The market reacts, the government reacts to that, the market reacts, and before you know it, you've got a problem and people are pointing to the market as the source of the problem, when in fact, it was the sequence of government interventions wow. that caused the problem in the first place. So are you, are you like, uh, are you like, you're not, so you're obviously, are, like, you, you're kind of going back and forth with like, uh, big government and like small government, like, are you kind of, uh, where do you stand, if you want, you know, we're not talking yeah. about it, but like kind of like them interfering with certain things and maybe not interfering with certain yeah, things. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I tell people I'm not, I'm neither for government, for big government or for small government. I'm for right government. Okay. And the right-sized government, in my opinion, is a government that prevents people from harming each other. And that includes not just preventing me from beating on you or yeah. vice versa, but also prevents me from dumping waste into you, onto your yard or into the air. That's also harming other people. Sure. So a government that prevents people from harming each other, but otherwise leaves them alone. So that's a government that would have, yeah, we'd have, um, we'd have environmental laws. Certainly, we'd have tort laws. Um, we would be in, the government would be enforcing contracts. Uh, we would have police to prevent theft, but you wouldn't have um, things like a minimum wage or things like uh, drug laws, where the government is stepping in to to two people who would who are otherwise coming to some agreement between themselves. Yeah. It doesn't involve anybody else. And the government's saying, no, you cannot make this agreement. Yeah. We're going to set rules for this. That's a problem. So like what, if you don't have those, like like the marijuana thing, how that was like the war on drugs was like this major thing. Yeah. And now it's, now it's legal. So it's right. like, yeah. so you're saying that, um, so what would be in place for that? Like instead, like we would just do our thing and like. Yeah, we just do our thing. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, probably to step, step, sidestep drugs a little bit, think about the FDA. And the FDA currently will prohibit you from buying drugs, that the medicinal drugs, that the FDA has not approved. Sure. Well, there are a lot of drugs out there that um, you know, haven't been approved by the FDA, but they show promise. And someone, particularly someone who's, who's terminal, is going to want to try these drugs. Of course, and, yeah. You know, and the FDA says no. Now that's a that's bad government because you've got a person the sick person and you you've got one party the sick person and the other party the the pharmaceutical company and they're willing to come together yeah to transact business and the government is stepping in saying no now an appropriate role for government here would be an FDA that doesn't prohibit the drugs but rather requires some stamp that says this drug has been FDA approved or alternatively warning this drug has not been FDA approved. It might kill you and it might do it painfully. Yeah. 
But it's on you. But so. it's on you to decide whether you want to go okay. with this or not. Yeah, I like that. Because That's it's, right government. Yeah, it's interesting. It's Yeah, because I'm not a fan of like, like I like the government. But you made a good point earlier when you said, like, it seems like you think that the government kind of has like the right intentions, but like economically sometimes makes like stupid choices, yep. whether whatever party doesn't matter. But like, and then that eventually affects us throughout history like i never knew about like the social security thing and like the the health insurance for jobs i've always wondered why is my job why is my job responsible right yeah. for my life yeah and, like my health care and yeah. all that dates stuff. back just, to the early 1900s in wage controls that but that makes so much sense yeah like yeah. and and what if we got rid of that now what would happen like if we, if, if jobs were like we're not going to cover your health insurance. Would we just make more money since we don't have those regulations anymore on pay and stuff or what? Yeah, in, in part, you'd be earning more money, but in part, you'd be spending more because now you're going to be responsible for the, Got it. for the health insurance itself. I think at the end, the great benefit is, is less in terms of how much I'm spending than it is in a reduction of the inefficiencies. So we spend... A we waste a tremendous amount of resources forcing our our system from worker to employer to insurance to hospitals to be compliant mm -hmm. with the rules that the government has put in. And so you can look at, you know, over time, the number of people that hospitals employ who have nothing to do with patients. All they have to do with is making the hospital compliant with government, and that, that increases while the number of people who actually care for patients is... Yeah, you know, nurses and doctors. Yeah, it just rises with yeah. population. You find the same thing with higher education, uh, teachers versus administrators. And so one of the things that this would this such a plan would do would be to eliminate all of that because there's no longer... Would you still have administrators? Certainly, because there are things, you know, you want to be careful that your insurance covers appropriate things and it's being used, not abused, this kind sure. of thing. So you're going to have administrators, but you don't have to have this huge cadre of administrators yeah. who have to basically... Their only job is to interface with government. Yeah. No, my, my mom is... Uh, she works for a big Atlantic general out in, uh, on the Eastern Shore, and she runs, like, the billing department. Yeah. And it's, like... It's a story she tells me of, like, just the, just the annoying part of her job there's like an entire department of just nothing but people dealing with claims and insurance and all yeah. this other stuff when like the like you, like you said there's way more of those people than there are like doctors yeah. and nurses and stuff yeah now you you start the conversation by saying that you know government has or we'll say politicians bureaucrats have good intentions and the intentions run afoul we see an example of that right now with this call to um to make college free <sighs> And, and the problem here, and it's the same problem I submit that happens every time we have politicians talk about whatever it is, be it college or healthcare or social security sure. or whatever. The problem is that they will, they will focus on their intentions and in doing so only show you half of the picture. Okay. Yeah. And so the half of the picture that they're showing us now is your kids will be able to go to college and it won't cost you anything. Not, not like Harvard, but like. Public right. colleges, yeah. right? Okay, public, yeah. public colleges. Got it. And, okay, that's fine, and it sounds really good. In fact, it polls very well. When you know average Americans are asked, how do you feel about this? They say, thumbs up. This sure. is a great sounds idea. Great. Yeah. But interestingly, um, I believe it was Pew, if not Gallup, did a series of, of studies on this. They asked this question to, to the average voter, what do you think about free college? And they say, thumbs up, great idea. Sure. And then they rephrase it, and they say, well, what about free college in exchange for your taxes going up X percent? 
And there, the support for the thing dropped precipitously. Yeah. Because that's the full picture. You can't give anything without there being some cost on the other side. Of course. And part of the problem with intentions is we focus on them. We say things like, there are a lot of poor people who can't afford to go to college. We need to fix that. In fact, college is too expensive for almost everybody. We need to fix it for everyone. And when you look at the intention, it looks well and good and noble. But when you look at the other side and say, yeah, but it's going to come at a cost. And the cost is everybody's going to have to pay whatever, 10% more taxes. Yeah. And now you see, you know, the single mother trying to raise kids and just barely getting by. She can't afford to pay another 10%. No. And if you ask her, she would say, yeah, free college sounds like a good idea, but not at that price. Yep. I'd rather do something else. And, and there you see the full picture. And one of the ways to get around this, this problem of falling into the trap of good intentions is to make sure that we show the whole picture. What are the benefits and what are the costs? Yeah, no, that's I actually have two questions about that. So my first question is, I think I, I think it's New York. Um, is it D.C. too? There's a couple states that are doing the free public um, colleges, right? Right. And I'm like, um, that sounds great. That's awesome. Because when I lived in New York, my, uh, my girlfriend was like, hey, I might... I might do this, whatever. And I kind of like looked into it. So if you do it, first off, you have to like uh, qualify. Mm -hmm. um, and then you do your four-year degree, but you basically have to sign a contract saying you will not leave the state right. for an additional four to six years after you graduate, yeah. which yeah. would obviously make that state's um, you know the, the uh, economy work better for them because they would provide the education, but then you would stay here to get a job, and then it would just like recycle itself. Right. makes sense. But it's like, all right, well, if I want to go to school in North Carolina at Duke, but I don't want to live in you right. know, at, at Duke, like, you know, like, so it kind of, I was like, it's kind of like a trap. Like, you're basically going to invest like 10 years of your life, if not longer, mm -hmm. just, just to get free schooling. So it was like... I, I don't know why they did that or structured that way or if that was like kind of like they're testing it and to see if like the free public space would work. But um, so what are your thoughts on that? But also, I'm not a fan of higher education. Personally. Oh, I agree. Neither am I. And I okay. teach in it. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. Good. I thought you were going to say the opposite because, for instance, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, that's one thing. But for me, as a, I went to school for film. I should have never went. Yes. Because yes. I, everything I learned, I either did or I could have learned on YouTube. The only thing I got from my education was the people that I met in mm -hmm. school, and I work with them now professionally. Okay. And you only met them because they were there also, exactly. and they didn't yeah. need to be. 100%. So I think, you know, like, what are your thoughts of, of actually going to school? Yeah. So if you go back to the 1970s, 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds were enrolled in higher education. Today, it's 50%. Now, you can't tell me that our 18 to 24-year-olds are twice as smart as they were in the 1970s. No. What's, what's going on is we're pushing people into college who don't belong there. Hmm. And uh, it's not because they're dumb. It's because college is designed to give you an education in which you think about things as opposed to an education in which you're doing things. Ah. And if your goal is to do things, you don't need a college education. You need technical training. And somehow in this country, and Europe avoided this, and I don't know how they did it. But in this country, we've come to denigrate technical training as being somehow you're a second-class uh, citizen. 100%. Yeah. When, when in fact, you know, I'll give you a good example. My, uh, of course, I come, I'm an academic. My 
parents and my wife's parents are all academics or brothers and sisters. It's an entire family of academics, yeah. right? <laughs> Including my ch- five of my six children. Number six says, heck with that. I want to be an automotive engineer. <laughs> and I said, thumbs up, dude. Yeah, <laughs> Go yeah, for it. Yeah. Because, you know, that's where his... That's where his um, interests, yeah, lie. skill set, all that. Stuff. He can go yeah. get a degree in accounting and probably end up earning less than he would as a, as a good automotive engineer and not enjoy it. Yeah, and be miserable. That's my right. thing. Yeah, it's like you pay. I mean, I paid for three years, and I went to like listen. I went to the art institute first off. So wow, joke scam. They got sued by the government. They're like they were nonprofit or they were for profit. Now they have to be mm-hmm. nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's not like I went to like like USC or like a school that like might have gotten me like in a room with Steven Spielberg. You know what I mean? I went to like some bogus school and like, so just the educational system in general, I think is kind of like not helping or working to, to help people in general. Right. right? What what would you say? Like kind of, yeah, I think that's true. And part of it, part of it comes from how we pay for college And this idea of making college free actually is going to make that whole situation worse Hmm. because what happens is colleges and universities have no skin in the game when it comes to your eventual employment. So you come to the school and you pay them X tens of thousands of dollars. And if you get out, if you graduate with a degree that has no market value, that doesn't cost the university anything. You're you're done, you know, on on your own. We're done with you. You know, an interesting way to do this would be to require that the universities and colleges, which have, you know, tremendous endowments, use the endowments to fund loans to the students. So the colleges and universities would loan directly to the students. So if you can't get a job to repay your loan, the college or university is out the money. So they make sure you have a job. All of a sudden, they become hyper-focused on admitting people who are going to do well, and and while you're there, that you study things that have serious market value. Yeah. And making college, quote-unquote, free actually goes in the opposite direction because what it does is it removes from both the student and the college um, any any, um, negative repercussions of making bad choices. Sure. You know, you could go, you study basket weaving, you can't get a job. (laughs) Well, that's okay. The taxpayer is going to take care of that for you. That's so smart because like, um, the, what you just said about the, um, um, the, the job department or the job finding department, whatever you want to call it, recruiting or whatever in most colleges are a joke. Mm -hmm. Like I remember at our Institute, when it comes time for them to look, uh, look for a job for you, they're finding like. Oh, we got you a wedding gig or we got you. I'm like, why aren't you finding me jobs at like ESPN or like, right. why am I not recording a documentary for Nat Geo right now? You know what I mean? Right, like, right. They're not finding legit jobs that require. I have so many friends that went to school at like University of Maryland for like all these amazing degrees and they're like bartending or they're yep. like selling insurance or they're doing something that has nothing to do with what they went to school for. Yeah. One of the things that I say repeatedly to high school students is that a college degree isn't valuable. A college major is. And the value ranges dramatically. At the top is petroleum engineering. The average student with a four-year, so forget about graduate school, the average student with a four-year degree in petroleum engineering can expect to earn almost $6 million over the course of a 40-year career over and above what he paid, what cost him for the college yeah. education. So, no question, petroleum engineering, it's worth it. Go for it. On the other end of the spectrum, you get things like uh, early childhood development, whose value is negative half a million. Oh that God. is, early childhood development, when you're done with that degree, you're actually worth less on the market than you were with your high school diploma. 
Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, you get the, this gamut of things in between. So when people start talking about the importance of the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, they're all up at the top end worth two, three, four million dollars over and above the cost of the education. Wow. Things when you get into the liberal arts, that's worth much less. The fine arts, less. When you get into things, basically any any major that ends in the word studies is at the bottom of the pile. Wow. It's almost not worth it your time to go get the degree. That now, makes so much now sense. let me put a big footnote here because people are going to wig out saying, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm going to college for more than a, than a job. I'm going to improve myself and all of this. And that's fine. But if you're going to improve yourself, that's on you. If we're talking about the government funding college education, what matters isn't the benefit to you. What matters is the benefit of your education to others. Got it. And that's reflected in the wage rate. The wage that you can get with your degree is a direct measure of the value of that degree to the rest of society. And so if if after you've paid the tuition, you can't afford to, to pay back your loans, well, that's an indication that society doesn't need, need any it. more yep. people who have that degree. Yep. That not makes... to say it's not valuable, but to say that we've got enough of people who are already willing and able to do this thing. We don't need more. Yeah. So basically find something that is in of need and yeah. go do that, basically. Yeah. And notice the focus here, because again, people wig out when you talk about, well, you're focused on, on making a profit from your education. But that's what profit is. It's a yeah. sign that you have provided value to somebody else. And so this whole conversation about what's my degree worth on the market, mm -hmm. it's it's other-centered. It's a question of how, what can I do for others? How much do others value what I'm doing? As opposed to a self-centered of, you know, do I want this and it's going to make me a better person? Yeah. No, that actually totally makes sense. And I agree with you. I think when people see a company or whoever thinking like about a profit, it's okay to make a dollar off of what you're providing, especially if it's a good service and people are, are getting benefit from it. So yeah. that's so funny that I, I that like being like owning a business and, and dealing with that stuff, I kind of catch myself sometimes almost not feeling bad, but like, I don't want to like make too much or do too well because I don't want people to think like, Oh, he's in it for the money. It's like, no, it's like, but now that what you're saying totally makes sense. It's like, yes, I'm, I can make money and make a good amount of money doing it. But if I'm benefiting, hundreds or thousands of people at the same time yeah what's so bad about that right right yeah and if you're making money at it it's precisely because you're benefiting all yeah. those people they like what you're doing so much they are willingly handing yeah. you their money for you to do more of it i know we talked about it in the beginning but uh, i want to kind of get back to like immigration and kind of your opinion on like all the, obviously we talked about the positives of immigration but like are there any like major negatives to immigration as far as like whether it's Europeans or you know south of the border or Canadians right. whatever like what are like the negative aspects of you know accepting immigration as like a a, a thing yeah I, I would imagine that you know you can make a good argument that one of the negatives is if you're just going to throw your borders open and let anybody come in mm -hmm. um you're going to get a, a decent number of people coming in who you know who are who are violent who are criminals who are bringing in contraband this kind of a thing and certainly that's a problem now to go to the other extreme and say okay we're going to basically shut the border we're going to build a wall and yes we have legal ways that you can immigrate but the hoops are gargantuan for legal immigration such that you know with the when it comes to someone who is of lesser means it might as well be shutting the door that we're not allowing anybody in yeah. and and so all of a sudden 
you you're faced with this question of do I am I willing to risk letting a few bad apples in in exchange for all these other wonderful people or do I want to shut everybody out in exchange for just keeping those or alternatively is there a way that we can that we can filter people so we make it much much easier to come into the country uh, but we have the means in place to identify people who we don't want in, you know, who are criminals or what have sure. you. Now, one of the things that people point to is the is the drug war. Um, you know, we have drugs coming across the border. But part of that is due, we, we talked earlier about the government coming to the rescue to solve problems that the government created. Yeah. And this is one of them. In out in outlawing drugs the way we have and criminalizing them the, the way that we have, we have created the conditions for uh, for drug monopolies. For, we call them cartels, the drug cartels. Yeah. It's incredibly profitable to sell drugs, if, if I'm a Mexican drug cartel, to sell drugs to Americans. Yeah. And so I have a tremendous profit incentive to figure out how to do that, regardless of whatever immigration rules you put in place. And one of the ways around that is to say okay we're going to we're going to decriminalize all of it um, that's not to say that we're not going to be concerned about people who are getting um, addicted to certain drugs but rather we're not going to treat them as criminals there's you know all this the SWAT teams that we send out all that goes yeah. away um, what happens all of a sudden is the the cartel the monopoly status that these people have had uh, disappears it disappears because anybody can now, you know, I can go into business growing drugs and selling them. Yeah. Um, and consequently, when the monopoly disappears, you, you'll have the same thing that you saw in this country with alcohol. When we, with the, Probably whatever should. amendment it was that yeah. made alcohol illegal, all of a sudden we had alcohol cartels pop up. Mm -hmm. Why? Because in effect, in making it illegal, you have created a monopoly. And it's very profitable to provide the thing. Yep. And once we repealed whatever amendment it was, now alcohol is legal, all that disappears. Yeah. No, it's. I totally agree with you. And I think, so I actually, um, you know, the fentanyl, that drug? Yes, yes. So we've had a huge spike in that. And uh, I was watching Joe Rogan, of course, and he had a, he had a, 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 a ex-federale like cop who like was like in it on there. And he was talking about the reason why we've had such a high... Um, uh, percentage uh, rates of fentanyl was because U.S. majority of the U.S. made marijuana legal, so that cut into the cartel's right. profits. Yeah, yeah, so they had to say, okay, well, what else can we do to make more money? So they went that way. So I think you're right because if we made, I mean, if we made everything like Holland or whatever, mm -hmm. like has everything pretty much decriminalized, um, you would have to almost do everything because they'll find a way or something to sell and boost that up to, to make a profit. Like, right, right. So like, how would they, you know, how would you, would you have to just make everything basically decriminalized and legal? Yeah, you, you decriminalize all of it. Now, you know, going back to my idea of right government, you would have laws in place that say, look, if you're selling this drug and it's tainted and kills people, yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. You've imposed a harm on somebody. Sure. But apart from that, you know, it, you, you let people do what they want. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about drug addiction. Certainly we should. But it is to acknowledge the fact that I don't believe drug addiction would be any worse. In fact, it might even be better if it were, if the whole thing were legalized versus uh, illegal. I agree. I think, I think you're totally right because it's like almost with the alcohol thing. I know as a, before 21, 
most i mean i was like oh i want to i can't wait to be 21 i'll be able to drink legally blah 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 because i never drink when i'm under 21 right right Uh, yeah yeah. (laughs) hey mom yeah yeah about those laws yeah no i gave it up in a a previous podcast so i'm i'm out but um but then when i turned 21 i was like okay like i didn't even care yeah i went and went to a bar and got like a shot or whatever but i it wasn't it like took it it didn't matter to me so i think if it's like legal it's you're not gonna have that like oh I need it I need to have this like that feeling or whatever of like just doing it to do it versus like you know because I'm sick or or whatever other reasons like you know what I mean yeah Is that I I guess somewhere along the line there's this idea that if we make something legal everybody's gonna do it that's not which is weird yeah, yeah. I don't think that's true at all I don't, I'm saying I agree with you I don't think mm. that's like a it's just proven that like that's not gonna happen right. Right. I think you're right. It would probably make it even easier, like less addiction. And then I think like, is it Holland or is it? I think, yeah, I think it is. Like heroin's legal. Everything's legal. But, and they don't like, uh, if you get into, like if you have a certain, like a lot of amount of it or you OD or something happens, they don't throw you in jail. They take you to a rehabilitation center and actually, and, and their numbers are insane of people getting off of the drugs and stuff because they have that system and that support system. And they're not like, you know, they don't throw the book at him for like yeah, a well, gram of weed. You've, you've stumbled upon an important point, which is that I would argue the addiction in, in many cases, if not most cases, the addiction is going to be there regardless. If I have an addictive personality, whether it's legal or illegal, I'm going to find it and I'm going to get addicted to it. Yep. But when we make it illegal, we throw on top of the addiction problem an additional problem which is all of the legal nonsense that that you've got to deal with. Let's talk for a moment about MMT, uh, modern monetary theory. This is, we had a number of of candidates talking about this early on, and then it dropped out and it's starting to come back again. And it's this idea that the government can print money to pay its bills. Modern monetary theory. So like the, because the, uh, what's it called? The, um, What's the Federal Reserve? That's not even a government right. establishment. Well, yeah, technically it's not the government. It's one of these things that on paper it's not the government. In practice, it's kind of the government. Okay. Depends on how hard the government pushes, right? This kind of thing. Uh, but the Federal Reserve is a private co- is a private company, yeah. but it was created by Congress and it's directed by Congress. Well, I should say directed by Congress. It was established by Congress and Congress can unestablish it anytime it wants. Okay. Um, but as far as printing money, that's the institution. Yeah, that's that the entity the that money. does the printing of the money. Yep. And somehow we, thankfully, I'm hearing less of it over the past couple of months. But I expect it to come back as the election heats up. This idea that we can pay our bill, we the I shouldn't say we the government can pay its bills by simply printing money, and and what happens at the end is people do a lot of mental machinations to hide the fact that. You can't make goods and services appear out of thin air. No. That ultimately, what matters it isn't the amount of money that's around. What matters is that you have a smartphone and I have a smartphone. We have cars, we have houses, we have food. The goods and services we have is what matters. And printing dollars doesn't give us more goods and services. All it does is it, it dilutes the value of the dollars. So each dollar becomes worth less. In the end, all that printing money does in effect is um is to impose a tax on savers so if you've got a thousand bucks in the bank and the federal reserve starts printing some money that thousand dollars buys less than it did before Uh. because prices rise so what's really happened is we've stolen 
some of your purchasing power yeah. by printing this money. So like, because it takes, how much does it cost to make a penny? It's more like, than a penny. Than I don't know penny. what is right. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it's so like, I think like Yang, I think was like talking about getting rid of the penny. But like, is that kind of like similar to what you're talking about as far as like devaluing the actual dollar in our purchasing power by printing money? Yeah, it's a little bit different because they're, when they get rid of the penny, they would replace it with something else, uh, right? So not enough, what I'm saying is you'd have the same total dollar amount of coins it just would be no pennies you'd have more nickels and dimes or something like that okay but here you're actually increasing the total number of dollars in wow. the economy that's so interesting so and that- this and, and that leads into another topic that's worth talking about and that's inequality yes and people get you know bent out of shape about inequality and i think in many instances they make this same error that that we're bumping up against with modern monetary theory. And that is they focus on the dollars. And if you've got a big pile of dollars and I have a small pile of dollars, that's a problem. So I, I ask my students, you know, how many of you have, uh, have a billion dollars? Of course, there's no hands. Of course, hands, yeah, right? yeah. College students. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, in, <laughs> in fact, if you do the numbers, you need something like 500,000 people in front of you to expect just one of them to put their hand up when you say who has a billion dollars, right? Wow. But, um, so if you look at the dollars, there's lots of inequality. There's a few people who have lots of dollars and lots of people don't have many dollars. Sure. But if you ask how many of you have smartphones, every single hand in the room goes up. Yep. How many of you have cars or your parents have cars, you have access to a car? Every hand goes up. Um, are there exceptions? Certainly there are exceptions. But the vast, vast majority all have these goods and services. And if you look at the distribution of goods and services, what you find is much more equality. Everybody's got, you know, maybe your car is better than mine, or maybe your house is better than mine, but you have a car and I have a car and they both get us from point A to point B. You have a house, I have a house. It keeps the rain out, right? keeps me warm. Um, In that sense, we're all extremely, extremely equal. And so when we talk about inequality, we focus on these dollars. And what's happening is we're misunderstanding what dollars are. The, the analogy I give is, let's suppose that we live in a community and there, there are no dollars. You do stuff, you, you grow food or whatever, sure. you build houses. And, and I do stuff. I, I paint houses and I fix cars and stuff like that. And maybe it's the case that the stuff I do you value tremendously, maybe because I'm really good at it, or maybe there aren't many people who do that kind of thing. For whatever reason, you put place a high value on the stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. And maybe conversely, you don't place much of a value on the stuff that you do. So you, you know, you build houses and there's so many materials around that you can build houses very easily. You got a bunch of people who help you out. It's not a big deal. And so you don't place a high high value on on stuff that you make. Yep. And what happens in this society we trade. I do the stuff I do for you. You do the stuff you do for me. Now, if we live in a society in which the value of the stuff that I do is tremendous and the value of the stuff I ask for in return isn't that high, you'd point to me and say, that's the kind of guy I want as my next door neighbor. He provides more value to the rest of society than he asks for in return. Yeah. Well, okay. But if you impose on that scenario a monetary system, what happens is you you give me lots of dollars because you highly value what I give you and you don't ask for many dollars in return because the stuff you're giving me, you don't place a high value on. And so I accumulate a pile of dollars. And I get nothing, basically. Well, you're getting the goods and services. You have less of a pile of dollars. I have a larger pile yeah. of dollars. But what is this pile of dollars? It's a bunch of IOUs. It, it says that 
you owe me more stuff that I'm not consuming yeah. because you valued the stuff I gave you more yeah. than you valued the stuff you gave me in return. So when you look at the pile of dollars, we say, well, this guy needs to give back to society. Uh. No, the pile of dollars is an indication that society actually owes him more stuff than he's currently consuming. Wow. Well, it's kind of like what you said earlier about like the... Um, about the um, the value of yeah, yeah it's yeah. yeah it goes back to the value of what it is you're you're producing exactly so I think not to say that all inequality discussions are um, are flawed but I think a lot of them are flawed when they start immediately focusing on the dollars dollar amount yep yeah no I agree yeah so it's so what you're saying is kind of like okay yeah you might have a mansion I might have a trailer but in reality neither one of us are living on the street right yeah right so yeah. we're technically equal but as far as but you're just saying don't look at it as like a monetarily thing like, like yeah. it's it's not that's where it could look be. at the goods and services yeah. got it that makes so much sense yeah that would probably much that probably be a much easier conversation versus like well you're a millionaire and, da, 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 and i'm not you know yeah. so you're a piece of shit or whatever you know yeah. like now do you mean inequality as far as like women in the workforce no i mean income inequality got it okay cool yeah so let's clarify like yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Like, That's important. Yeah. My my colleague James James Harrigan, who's a uh, political philosopher, does the same thing. He always gets on to me when I say inequality. <laughs> he said, "What do you mean by inequality?" What do you mean? Right. But being an economist, when I say inequality, of course I mean income inequality. Yeah, That's what we well, talk about. People here, they're gonna be like, "What do you mean? What about women?" Right. Or whatever. So like. Let's clarify a little bit about like you mean you're just literally talking about economics. You're not right, talking that's about, correct. No, I'm not talking about anything social. Talk about gun control. Let's talk about guns. Yeah, right. Talk about guns. <laughs> we're in like we're in the middle of Virginia, right? That's so, right. Yeah. Virginia's pretty gun friendly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We, my colleague James Harrigan and I write um, an op-ed a month for papers throughout the country, and uh, we make it a point to avoid talking about guns anytime we're close to some national gun tragedy, sure. yeah, because yeah. you know people. People are driving by emotion rather than logic. Yep. But, but it's worth thinking about a little bit. Um, one of the things that people are largely unaware of is that the CDC commissioned a study just a few years ago, and by a few, I mean maybe five years ago, asking the question, how much defensive gun use is there? In other words, in how many instances per year does somebody use a gun to prevent what would either be violence upon them or, or even sure. their death, right? And as you can imagine, the numbers are very hard to come by. So you get this, this range, uh, a huge range, from something on the order of 50,000 a year up to a million a year, yep. something like that. But what's noteworthy is in, in this study that the CDC commissioned looks at a whole bunch of studies by um, people who have, who have looked at this thing. Yeah. And, and it shows all the, the range of numbers. At the low end, in the worst case scenario, the number of defensive gun uses in this country equals the number of offensive uses, which indicates that if we could wave a magic wand and and get rid of all the guns tomorrow um the people who are going to use guns illegally are going to find them anyway yes and all you've done is you've disarmed the people who would defend themselves so yeah. it, at the end you're you're no better off than you were before that's a, the that's in the worst case scenario in the best case scenario um you know the number of defensive gun uses far outweighs to like 10 times the number of offensive uses now one of the things that, that people will point to is compare the United States to other countries and number of guns and number of uh, gun fatalities. <clears throat> and you have to be very careful about these numbers. 
firstly, the numbers, if the numbers aren't on a per capita basis, they have no meaning. Sure. So for example, yes, we have a lot of gun deaths in this country compared to, you know, pick some other country, uh, the UK. Okay, but we have a much larger population than yes. the UK. So you would expect. Of right? course. So you have to look at the thing on a per capita basis. The, the other thing that you have to be very careful of is what matters isn't mass shootings. That is, it doesn't matter that five people were killed at once. If five people were killed, whether they were killed at once or in different places or over the course of a week, what I care is that five people were killed. Yeah. So mass shootings as opposed to shootings doesn't matter that much. Um, more than that, firearm deaths compared to deaths, in my opinion, don't matter that much. What I really care about is how many times has somebody killed somebody else? That's what Period. bothers me. Period. Yeah. I don't care whether you used a gun or a knife or, or a shoe. Sure. If you killed somebody, that's a problem. Yep. Now, if you look at the numbers for the United States, number of intentional homicides per capita, uh, compared to the amount of guns we have, and you do that for all the countries, what you find is the United States is not an outlier. All of a sudden, yeah, um, you know, it's because the amount of guns that we do right. have, right? We we have a tremendous number of guns, yeah. Million, yeah. But the number of intentional homicides per capita is not out of the ordinary. Yes, that makes total sense. Actually, and that's not to say again, it's not to say that the the homicides don't matter. It is to say that if you really care about stopping people from killing other people as opposed to using the killings as an excuse to confiscate guns. If you really care about people killing people, that, then you should be looking at intentional homicides, and you should be asking the question, well, if they aren't correlated with gun, gun ownership, sure. what are they correlated with? And go after that thing. No, you're right. I, I, was, I, I had this conversation. Well, it wasn't a conversation. It was a, um, and I totally agree with you, because I think it's like you think about if you did take all the guns away, When's the last time you saw someone like in a gang or a gangbanger go to a gun store, buy a gun that they know they're going to go right. commit a murder with? Probably never. So all of the they're going to if, if somebody wants to do harm to someone, they're going to find a way, whether it's a car, a knife. Oh, or sure. It doesn't matter. So I uh, actually I had a friend of mine make a post on Facebook and I never comment. I never comment on stuff because I, I don't like to go back and forth. And it was like um, America has a, uh, a problem with white uh, terrorists like mm. or white domestic terrorism and I'm like okay well so factually I, I just didn't think that was accurate because the the vast majority of mass shooters especially in 2019 are not all white because mass shootings I think they uh, clarify or, or define it as like three or more casualties in a public place yeah not including the perpetrator yeah it depends there are several definitions but yeah, yeah I think yeah. the FBI definition is three or maybe four yeah, yeah. it's like three yeah. or four um so it, it just like it really kind of was like well my main goal was to like we don't don't do this like race thing or whatever it's like if someone killed someone that's a problem. That pro exactly. Right. Regardless of who did it, how they did it, whatever. Um, and then so a, a female chimed in, and I didn't know who she was, and then she started dropping words like uh, neo-Nazi and she, you know, my white privilege and all these things. And I was like, let me think about this. Because I could totally drop some facts and knowledge on her, mm. and, but I didn't want to go back and forth. So I instead extended a, to come on my podcast um, and was like, you know, let's. you don't know my background. You don't You don't know my mm -hmm. history. You're just seeing my profile picture. Right. Have no clue what I've been through or anything. So anyway, so my point, though, is um, the. it's not the guns per se, but like I think social media has a major, major uh 
play and how we have this conversation yeah. because it's it's you see mass shootings and you you just everyone goes up in arms it's like they're making it sound like oh it's it happens it's more frequent than ever and it, it, we act like people's never had no one's ever been murdered by guns before like, yeah yeah and, and here it, it's interesting to look at the numbers because what People say we have an epidemic of gun violence. Yes. We, we don't have an epidemic of gun violence. We have an epidemic of the reporting of gun violence. Yes. And you see it on the news. And of course you see it on the news because what are they doing? Their goal is to sell eyeballs. Yeah. They want to sell advertise if they can get you to watch the thing. Yep. So they're going to repeat all the bad news. What you don't see is the good news. Good yeah. news doesn't sell. Of course not. But if you step back and look at the numbers, and you can find this uh, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the number of homicides, uh, excuse me, firearm homicides. So forget about homicides. This is homicide by gun in the U.S. is down 50%, 5-0, since the 1990s. Yeah. And further, the number of crimes committed with a gun, whether the person's killed or not, that's down 80%. Yes. So the gun crimes and, and gun violence are declining precipitously in this country. Are there exceptions? Sure, there are exceptions. But generally speaking, it's declining. And one of the problems we have, I think we have two problems. One problem is, I blame on the media, not just the social media, but the mainstream media, 100%. of refusing to speak clearly. So the media will say things like, we should ban assault weapons. Well, assault weapon has no definition. Yeah. So, so what you get immediately is two sides. The control people think that the pro-gun people are just splitting hairs yep. because we say, well, you know, assault weapon, what does this mean? It's yeah. cosmetic, this and that. And so the pro-control people think that the pro-gun people are trying to obfuscate by, by you know, not engaging. We're going to split hairs on sure. definitions. But conversely, the pro-gun people think that the pro-control people want to ban everything yes, because they're using terms that have no clear definition. That are so broad. And therefore, yeah, could be applied to anything. Exactly. That and makes sense. And so I think the, the first step to having a, a fruitful conversation in this country about gun control is let's all pledge to get the terms right. So yeah. semi-automatic has a particular meaning. Um, assault weapon doesn't have any meaning. There is an assault rifle that does have a meaning, right? Yes. So yeah, it takes a little bit of time, but I think with 10 minutes with Google, we can figure this yeah, out. Yeah. And so we can use the right terms and have a conversation. And I think the next step, once we, we can now communicate clearly, is that each side has to give the other the benefit of the doubt. Sure. That just because you like guns and I don't, it doesn't mean you're evil. It doesn't mean I'm evil. Yeah. It means we're concerned about something. And I think we can find middle ground. And one of the interesting places to find some middle ground, I think, is in the combination of mental illness in guns. Um, I think probably everybody could agree that someone with a mental illness shouldn't own a gun. Is that a Second Amendment violation? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. But we violate all sorts. And the Supreme Court holds upholds violations of all sorts of rights yes. under certain circumstances. To the under certain circumstances, yeah. yeah. Um, now, that's fraught with all kinds of difficulties of how do we define mental illness, who does the defining. But notice what happens. If we can, if we can first agree on the terminology so that we can communicate, yeah. and second assume goodwill on each other's parts, we can now for the first time start to have this conversation. And is it going to be easy to figure out how do we keep hands out of the mentally ill? No, it's not. No. But at least we've got the groundwork that we can begin 
to try and work in that direction. No, you're a hundred you, right on the head because I, two things. One that I've seen as far as the argument or the, the, the conversation that people try to have is um, as a pro gun person, I think that it's, it's very much like the terminology is totally off. And then I don't think that uh, more regulation or whatever means complete confiscation. I don't mm -hmm. believe that. Right. But a lot of people that are pro-gun think that because, like you just said, the terminology is completely off. It's too broad. Yeah. It's way yeah. too broad. Yeah. So they think they just want to pull in Australia and do a whole you know, yeah. mandatory yeah. buyback. But I don't think that's the case either. And then as far as you hit it right on the dot, too, the the gun homicide or the gun violence and the homicides are the numbers you should look at because most people that have an argument that are anti-gun talk about uh, gun was a gun violence in general yeah, or whatever. Right. And it's like, or no, 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 not gun violence, just just gun deaths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which Majority includes suicide. Are suicide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's my point is like, like you got to get your facts like, like make sure we're all talking about the same thing at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and and this is this is important to underline. The suicides, I believe, are somewhere around two thirds to three quarters yes. of all of gun deaths. Yes, it's like so, seventy some percent. Yeah, it's the insane. vast majority of gun deaths are people killing themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So you know whether that's that's a part of the mental illness. Why should mm -hmm. they? It, that's irrelevant. But like that's my point. Is like the majority of like we need to specifically talk about one thing, and that's gun homicide, gun violence right. on someone else. Else. Right, right. Not myself, right. because that is a huge amount of people when it comes to suicide. That's actually like I like perfectly. I, that's I wish everyone could kind of have that conversation. And I'm not like excited because like whether you're pro gun, I'm pro. Mm -hmm. It's not even like that. It's like terminology has to be on point because you're right. If you're talking about an assault assault ban or assault rifle, it's like what gun are you talking about? Like the AR-15. Like there's no there's no way to get a fully automatic weapon. Right. Like it's like right. it's determined, and the media is a is a huge part of that. And I just it sucks mm -hmm. because I don't know how or what's gonna happen. You know what I mean? Like I don't know how we can have that conversation when you have people not knowing the terminology and thinking one way that are you know one minded in one way, and then the, the right as well thinking they're just gonna like take all of their guns and it's right. just, you know, so that's what your thing is to focus on like the actual details, have that yeah. conversation, know the terminology and, and, and assume goodwill on the part of the person you're talking to. Yeah. That you're both looking to solve a serious problem. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Australia and that's worth um, <laughs> noting in passing. Yes. Of course, Australia, whenever it was 1996, thereabouts uh, banned, they con actually more than banned. They confiscated, and I don't know if it was all firearms or long guns in particular. Mandatory buyback. Man mandatory buyback. Yeah. And if you look at the numbers, what you find is in the four years after that, the number of gun homicides drops. Drops. But the number of knife homicides rises it's like an English, <laughs> at right? almost the, almost yeah. the same rate. And yep. so you know, all you're doing is you're back to the thing of you're switching what it is you're committing the crime yes. with. Yes, it's like like in England, they had like. I think it was like 33,000 uh, knife attacks, knife right. attacks. Yeah. and it's like like you said just like just like with the drug thing if somebody the cartels if somebody wants to do something they will find a way yeah. to do it like they say oh well are we going to ban cars because cars kill more people right. every year than guns or anything yeah. really you know and I think when it comes to killing other people you're you're absolutely right um if I'm intent on killing somebody you take away my gun, I'm going to find something else. Exactly. I'll find a way to kill the person. The, the place where it makes a difference, this goes back to the issue of mental health, is in suicide. Because 
in suicide, the gun is, is something that will, with which I can kill myself quickly, definitively. Yes. And there's no opportunity to turn back and say, ah, I don't think I'll do this. Yeah. You know, for example, as an alternative, I'm going to lock myself with a running car in my garage. You think about it. I've got time to think about it. Yeah. 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 And so from that perspective, um, I'll admit quite rightly that guns are are a problem when combined with people who are suicidal. It makes it way too easy. It does. You know what? You hit on a, a really uh, close point, actually. My, uh, I had a really good friend this past, this year, uh, commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And I had a um, another friend of mine, Rocco Kazaza, he's on the podcast a lot. We had a, he, he said, because my friend who committed suicide was a big gun person. So I thought when I heard that he killed himself that he used a gun. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh man, like that must have been, in, you know, crazy yeah. whatever. He actually hung himself. Mm. Uh, he's a two hundred plus pound big dude. His grandpa found him. It was very, very like I could, I couldn't even imagine. But I'm thinking like a gun, like you said, is like quick and right. over. But like when you're tying up a rope, you've got a lot of time to think about time. it. Like yeah. that, that even to me even is you got a lot more going on mm-hmm. versus like, Oh, I had a bad week. Let me just end it real quick. You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't know if like how, how though, cause I know you can't really look into someone's mental illness. Right. Mm-hmm. As far as like legally, right. like I, I can't look into someone's if they've had mental health issues to ban them from getting guns. So how is that? How do we even, yeah. See, and, and this is exactly the conversation that the left and the right should be having. Got it. And, and it is difficult and I don't know what the answer is, but we're never going to find the answer if there is one yes. until we sit down and start having that conversation, assuming goodwill on both parts. Of course. If, if I can, I would um, encourage your viewers to uh, check out my podcast yes. with James Harrigan, Words and Numbers. You yes. can find us at wordsandnumbers.org. Okay. Where else could they find you on social a- any, media? Any major podcast player. Awesome. Are you on social media, Instagram, Facebook? Oh, yeah. One Facebook, Twitter. Um, you can find me at, at Anthony Davies. Um, and Anthony Davies on uh, on Facebook. Thank you so much for, thank you. Thank for coming you very on much. and having me in your house and everything. Uh, but thank you, Anthony, for coming on. And uh, that was another episode of E4 Explosive Podcast. See you next time. Thank you.